Well, good morning, church. Um, if you've been with us, then you know that last week we finished our study through Colossians. We slowly worked our way through that letter, and last week we came to the final conclusion of it. And so this week, as we begin to, to turn our face towards the Lord, as, as Jesus turned His face towards Jerusalem, and we, we jump into this Holy Week, we're going to be looking at what's traditionally called Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of Jesus. So you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. That's where we'll find ourselves this morning in the Word. John chapter 12, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 12. So John chapter 12, verse 12. Here's what we read. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took out branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your spirit. Lord, we thank you for your church. And God, this morning as we gather together as your people, the church, we rely on your spirit to reveal your truth. God, would you give us spiritual eyes to see the truth within your word. Lord, would you prepare our hearts for the word you have for us to receive this morning. Whatever distractions we may have brought in with us, whatever worries or burdens we may have carried in the door this morning, God, I pray that we would, in this moment, lay those at your feet, that we would know what it means to experience your yoke that is easy and your burden that is light, that as we sit in your presence in this time, that we would truly experience rest. And that you'd be glorified in this time. That our eyes would be brought upon you. That you would increase in this moment, Lord, and that we would decrease. For your glory, we pray, God. And it's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're writing down notes today and you want to put a title on that page, you can write down this title you see on the screen there. Your king is coming. Your king is coming. Today is one of the probably greatest entrances that ever occurred within Scripture, one that I'm sure many of you have heard about and read about time and time again. 
We call it Palm Sunday because of these palm branches we read about that the people brought out and waved and laid down before Jesus approached. We call it the triumphal entry of Jesus as he marches his way into Jerusalem on a colt. And it's this day, one week prior to the resurrection of Jesus, that we will celebrate next week. One week prior to that Easter Sunday that we all look forward to. It's, it's this that really marks the beginning of this holy week, where we have the triumphal entry followed by Good Friday and then Resurrection Sunday that is coming next week. But what we read here is the next day this great multitude that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so I want to give a little context, if you're not familiar with what's taking place, with what's gone on, so that we're not jumping into the middle of a story here. And so what's taken place already is that as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he stayed the night with some very good friends of his, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, most likely at the house of Simon, And this is a special occasion as they enjoy a meal together because this is following the the, uh, death and being brought back to life of Lazarus. And so this is more than just a meal with some friends. This is a, a celebration of a life that was gone that has been brought back. And in many ways is a bit of a foreshadowing of a greater life, death, and true resurrection that will be experienced within Jesus. But it's within that meal that we see Mary breaking this jar of this costly spikenard oil and and pouring it out on Jesus' feet and using her hair to wipe it. It's a moment when we see the real heart of Judas come out as he's frustrated in this moment, seeing this as a waste of of costly oils that could have been sold and and the money could have been kept and given to to others. Of course, we know Judas' heart, his his love for money, and no doubt a desire to keep some of that for himself. But there's this moment where you see hearts exposed before Jesus in that room. And you've got a woman who's willing to lay down everything before Jesus in this extravagant display of worship. And a man who's frustrated at such an extravagant demonstration of love and wants to hold some of that back for himself. This was the night before, and now we're coming to the very next day as Jesus gets up with the disciples, and they're heading towards Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives. This is when we read that there was a great multitude that had come to the feast. And so, when you read your Bible, my hope is that when you read things like this, that your first question becomes, who is this multitude, and what is this feast, right? There's, a, there's this massive multitude gathering in Jerusalem for a feast. What is that, and how many people are we talking about here? It's important that we understand what's going on. Well, you need to understand that in Jewish culture, a large crowd would gather in Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts that would take place, or these pilgrim festivals, as they would be called in, in Judaism, In this case, the meal that they are all gathering for is Passover, and they would all come to Jerusalem for this. This was one of those three feasts that was actually mandatory, if it was at all possible, that you would appear in Jerusalem for it. The other two being the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, 
and then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. In fact, it's even a part of, of Passover that as they celebrate this meal, there would be a statement that they would proclaim, that they would say, next year in Jerusalem, because there was always this desire, if we can't be there this year, then next year we will go, because there was always this gathering of them coming together back to Jerusalem, the holy place, to celebrate this Passover meal together. So that's the meal taking place that they're all gathering in Jerusalem for. It's the Passover meal. But we need to understand just how many people we're talking about here. In the text, you just know that there's a multitude of people, that there's a large gathering of people coming together. But the Jewish historian Josephus, he noted that one year there was a census taken, and the number of lambs that were slaughtered for Passover, because you understand this is a part of Passover. They'd be gathering the sacrificial lambs into the city, and there would be a sacrifice of a lamb for every 10 people, which was a rough estimate of a household. No more than 10, but up to, up to 10 people per a lamb. Well, he noted that when they did this census of the number of lambs slain on Passover one year, it came out to 256,500 lambs. And so if you just do a rough estimate of that, according to 10 people per lamb, you get somewhere in the ballpark of 2.5 million people that are at Jerusalem at this time for this feast. So this isn't a small gathering where you have some family in town for the holidays. This is a massive overtaking of this city where it is crowded, and people are anywhere and everywhere they could possibly be for Passover. This is a massive gathering. This city is packed with people from all over the surrounding area that are all gathering into Jerusalem together, and word gets out that Jesus is coming to town. And wherever Jesus goes throughout his entire ministry, you see that crowds follow, especially as many of these people are probably familiar with the story of Lazarus that has just taken place. Because at the beginning of this chapter, we see that word has been spreading about this. And that many Jews are coming to Jesus because of the testimony of Lazarus. And so word has spread of what this guy Jesus has done. How he brought this man back to life, and now they hear he's coming to town. And so this crowd begins to gather. They they get these palm branches and they go out of the city to meet him before he even arrives in the city. Well, what's the significance of a palm branch? What, what, why are they gathering those? Well, palm branches were a sign of Jewish nationalism in many ways. It's, it's almost as if they were like waving an American flag as he's coming into town. They were welcoming the one they believed was coming to take over and rule within Jerusalem, the one that would overthrow the Roman Empire and would bring this, this liberation to the people where they'd be free no longer under this government. And so they bring out these palm branches first in celebration to wave them and then to lay them down as he would approach to walk upon them. I remember when I went to visit one of my good friends, UJ, uh, in Africa, and he originally was adopted from Africa, and um, I grew up with him in California, and then he felt a burden from the Lord to return to Africa to be a missionary and, and make disciples. And so he had, he had gone back to Kenya, 
and spent six months there. And I went just for the tail end of that trip uh, to, to meet with him, to help with some of the teaching at the Bible school he was at. And I remember when I traveled over there, uh, I got picked up by a guy, Peter, at the airport with UJ, and we were driving back to this village he was staying at. And as we were driving back, I noticed these crowds of people that were all cleaning the side of the road, which I thought was pretty odd because you have to understand these are dirt roads everywhere we're going. And so when you see people sweeping a dirt road and laying down cloth, I'm like, what's going on here? What, what exactly are they doing? And he said, they've been doing this for weeks. And they started at the airport and they're going all the way to this specific location because there's this prophet coming to town. And because the people want to, to make ready this way, they want to clear the path, they want to clean every bit of debris and then lay down this cloth. He said, even at the airport, they were going from where the airplane would land and were cleaning the pavement with bleach and scrubbing it to clean the whole pathway this prophet would walk on. Because in their mind, we want, to, we want to clean the ground he will place his feet upon. This incredible holy man that was going to grace them with his presence. Well, in a sense, what we see going on here as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem is very much the same thing. That this man is coming to rule and reign, and so out of this display of honor and, and respect for who he is, they, they're laying down their, their clothing it says in some of the Gospels, they're laying down these palm branches as this donkey would ride in to lay it down and prepare this path for him. I know we don't see it very often anymore, but if you watch a movie from quite some time ago, maybe black and white is how far back you'd have to go, you'll see a man that will do this great dis- gesture as a gentleman. He will, he will take out his jacket, he'd lay it over a puddle as the lady would walk by and step on his jacket so she wouldn't get her feet dirty. This honorable display of respect to the one that is going before you. And this isn't unique to this one circumstance. We see this throughout Scripture, an emphasis on the ground somebody would walk upon and the importance of it. You remember Moses in Exodus when, when there's this burning bush that he is approaching, and, and what is he told to do? To take off his sandals because this is holy ground that he is walking upon in the presence of God. Or the disciples were told that when they went to a city that wouldn't receive them and would not receive the message of the gospel they were bringing, as they left that city, what were they told to do but to to shake the dust off of their feet? To not carry any of that with them. It's as if to say, have nothing to do with that place. Don't even bring the dust from that place with you as you move on. You shake it off and you continue to move forward. Our closest example we could think of today is maybe something like the red carpet. When, when celebrities will walk in and there's this specific carpet there to walk across. This place of honor and respect for those who get to place their feet upon it. But what we see next is the reason why they welcomed Jesus in such a way. The purpose they saw him fulfilling. Listen to the words They're singing as he approaches Jerusalem. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now this is a paraphrase that they're giving of of a psalm, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This messianic psalm, it says, save now, I pray, O Lord, 
O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. See, these people are are shouting and celebrating and praising what they believe to be the next ruling king of Israel. The one that they believe is coming in to overthrow the leaders that are there and to take their place as their next king. The one they believe will alleviate their circumstances and, and elevate their status as a nation. But how is it that we find Jesus coming to them? Is it on a horse with an army, weapons prepared for war? Is it with authority and with power? We read then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. The other gospels would give us a little more insight to this than John. He would actually send out two of his disciples to go and and retrieve this donkey. And even itself what seems like a bit of a miraculous provision from God, because he would tell them, you go into the city, and you go to such and such a place, and you're going to find this colt there. You're going to find this young donkey, and, and when you go there, you're to bring it back. And if anybody gives you a hard time, you just tell them that the Lord has need of this animal, and they'll let it go. And, and I'm just thinking, if I was there, my, my next question is like, am I getting punked right now? Like, is this some kind of sick joke? I'm just supposed to show up at a house and take their donkey And if they ask why, I just say, oh, the Lord needs it. And they're just going to let me take it. Just no big deal. But that's exactly what he tells them to do. And when they go, we actually read in the Gospels, they are confronted. Because people aren't just letting you walk around and take their donkey away. And they say, well, the, the Lord has need of it. I wish I could see how they said that because I'm sure that they were feeling really embarrassed in this moment. Like, we have no good excuse. We're literally, from everybody else's point of view, stealing a donkey. And the only excuse we have is that the Lord needs it. And they're like, oh, sure the Lord needs it. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, and he's going to need my house tomorrow and my other donkey too, right? But they tell him the Lord has need of it. And they allow him to take it and go. And they come out and they bring this donkey to Jesus. They lay their clothes upon it. He sits on it. He begins to go into Jerusalem, approach the city. And there are three very significant things about Jesus sitting on this donkey and heading into Jerusalem that we need to look at. What it meant politically, what it meant prophetically, and what it meant symbolically. The first, though, is what it meant politically. What did it mean politically to see Jesus riding in towards Jerusalem on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. It spoke a message loud and clear for these people that were going out to celebrate him coming, who were expecting him to come in and overthrow Roman authorities in power. It told them right away that he wasn't coming for war. He wasn't coming with an authority and a power to to overthrow these people. Instead, when we find him coming on the colt of a donkey, an animal of peace, an animal used in travel and trade, but not an animal of war, that he wasn't there to establish an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. These people were expecting him to follow in the footsteps of their last leader, 
that they celebrated and welcomed with palm branches. You see, in 167 BC, there was another leader, Judas Maccabeus, who came into town with a very different plan. You see, Judas came into town to do exactly what they thought Jesus was going to do. He came in to overthrow the Seleucid Empire, the Greek state in Western Asia that had come in and was ruling over the people. They expected a change in the laws and a loosening of their restrictions and an alleviation of taxes and a celebration of new freedoms found by a new leader. When Judas came and there was this Maccabean revolt that took place, there was this celebration with palm branches that took place. And so they hear Jesus is coming and he's talked about ruling and reigning. And so they get out the palm branches. Here we go again. Finally, freedom. A new person who's going to make a change. But what they came to learn was that he wasn't coming in authority and power, but humility and peace. This is in part why these same crowds that right here are proclaiming, Hosanna, save now, will be the same people that next, in a few days, are going to be crying out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, but crucify this Jesus. Because we thought he's coming to town to overthrow this empire. We thought he was bringing freedom for us, but he's coming on a donkey He's not making the changes we wanted to see happen. He's not changing our circumstances in the ways we expected. And so forget him. Get him out of here. We want someone else. He wasn't the Messiah they expected. He didn't come in the way they thought he would. They wanted someone to save their situation. Not someone to save their soul. They wanted a better life, but they weren't looking for a new one. And so when this Jesus comes riding on a donkey, it speaks loud and clear to them, wait a second, where's his sword? Where's where's the army? Where's, Where's the great white steed that he's going to march into that town with and attack anybody that tries to stop him as he makes his way to the top? This isn't the Jesus they expected. But Jesus had a bigger battle than the kingdom of the Roman Empire. He had a battle against the power of darkness and death itself. And that battle is not fought fought with a sword, a physical sword, but a spiritual one. He knew the weapons that needed to be fought were spiritual weapons against a spiritual power and a spiritual darkness. But what did it mean prophetically? Because Jesus is fulfilling prophecy in this action as he gets on this donkey and marches towards Jerusalem. First, we read as we see in the text here, as it is written, and we're given a a summary, a paraphrase of Zechariah 9.9. The entirety of that voice, you'll see on the screen here, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Jesus did not ride this colt into town because he was tired, okay? He didn't need a break from the long hike and said, somebody get me a donkey, I'm exhausted. No, he's fulfilling prophecy in this very act. This was all part of God's plan, so we shouldn't be surprised that God provided the donkey needed to fulfill the prophecy. Zechariah had prophesied that this would take place. This wasn't for an ease of passage. This is a fulfillment of prophecy taking place with Jesus. But just as the prophet Zechariah had declared that there would be a coming king who is just and having salvation, Jesus came to fulfill prophecy and bring salvation to these people. Not a physical salvation from a political injustice, but a spiritual salvation from a spiritual darkness. He is the fulfillment of this and many other prophecies, one more of which we have to make mention of at this time. And that is found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And to give you a little context, Daniel was praying and crying out to the Lord for deliverance, for deliverance for Israel from Babylon, this empire that they were under. And in response to that prayer to the Lord, God gives them both a specific answer for those people, a deliverance that will come for them. It will come from Babylon through the decree of Cyrus with Nehemiah, but also There's this prophecy that has a greater fulfillment within the millennial kingdom and this return of the Messiah. Daniel 9.25 says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in the troublesome times. Now, a couple things to note about this prophecy that is given to Daniel. First, the New King James here says weeks, and that's a bit of a loose translation because what it actually translates to is sevens. It says that there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It's actually seven sevens and 62 sevens, and you're like, what is the significance? Well, it's significant because this isn't speaking to weeks as it is Clumps of seven years. So 62 sevens is 62 clumps of seven years each time. You've got 69 sets all together of seven years. What does that equal out to? 483 years. So we should be able to look at this prophecy given to Daniel that says 483 years from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, you will see your Messiah coming to you. And if you're somebody who studies the word like a Berean and says, man, I want to figure out the truth in this, you read that and go, okay, so we should be able to look back to the time that there was a decree given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, find that date, and then look forward 483 years, and there should be some kind of significant appearance or situation going on with the Messiah, right? I mean, this is prophecy. It needs to be fulfilled, or this is a false prophet, and this isn't truth. Absolutely. In fact, one man became so intrigued with this that he created a whole study and wrote a whole book on this very prophecy. That man was the lead detective of the Scotland Yard, 
Sir Robert Anderson. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince. And in that book, what he did is he took the 483 years given by this prophecy to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, and he discovered that such a date was given, in fact, in history to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That date, March 14th, 445 B.C., given by Artaxerxes, which means that you should be able to look, as he concludes in his book, from March 14th, 445 B.C., when the command was given by Artaxerxes, and go forward 483 years and see a significant event. And so he calculated not only the summary of those years, but he broke it down into days, because you have to understand their calendar in a year was different than our calendar in a year. We operate on a 365-day calendar. They operate on a 360-day calendar. So when you factor that in, factoring in leap years, he broke it down and concluded that it is exactly 173,880 days. And some of you are like, this is hurting my brain, but just wait, it'll be worth it, okay? So he goes from that date... 173,880 days forward in that ancient 360-day calendar based on the lunar calendar. And the date it came out to was April 6th, 32 AD, also known as the 10th of Nisan, the very day we are given in our scripture that Jesus would approach Jerusalem. Never let anybody tell you that your God is not in control. Never believe for a moment that God is not perfect in all his ways and in his timing. He could prophesy to Daniel 483 years before it would take place down to the day and work through the decree of an unbelieving leader like Artaxerxes to send people back to rebuild and restore Jerusalem and start the clock all the way to the day that Jesus would get on a donkey and approach Jerusalem to fulfill this prophecy. He can use anyone and everyone to put into motion his sovereign plan. And nothing sped it up and nothing slowed it down. It happened exactly as he has prophesied it would. And that same God that could prophesy something 483 years before it takes place holds our lives and our future in his hands. He is in control. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but he isn't late on answering your prayers. And he hasn't forgotten about it. And he wasn't too quick in responding to someone. He has a plan and a purpose for everything that takes place. Nothing happens outside of his control, so don't lose heart. Those things you may have been praying for for a decade, don't lose heart. We see 483 years before the fulfillment of a prophecy given to Daniel. Don't lose heart. He has a plan and he is working it out. And here that fulfillment takes place on this day. When Jesus comes in on the colt of that donkey. But that prophecy in Daniel continues in verse 26 when we read this. 
this, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. You see, Jesus coming into this city was always with one purpose, that he would die, but not for himself. Just as it was prophesied down to the day and the method by which he would approach Jerusalem, there was also a prophecy of exactly what he came to do. And no matter how much the disciples denied it or tried to change it, no matter how many times Peter said, no, 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 Jesus, you're not really going to die. I've got a better plan. This was the plan prophesied all along. Paul, in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. That this has always been his purpose and his plan, that he would come into Jerusalem to die. To save sinners. And there is only one way to save those deserving of death, and that is to die in their place. Jesus is fulfilling a long-awaited plan prophesied centuries before he was born. Him coming on this donkey meant something politically. It meant something prophetically. But what does it mean symbolically? Well, just as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan to bring peace, I hope you realize that he entered this world to bring peace for all. And in the same humility that he rode on this donkey into this town, he came into this world and took on human flesh. And he didn't arrive in a castle on a tempur mattress. He arrived in a manger in a town that people would say, can anything good come from there? To a family that was blue-collar, that was nobody special, that didn't have this incredible setup for him as he approached, that didn't even have a place to stay in the inn. He entered this world to bring peace. But not a surface peace that lasts for a short season, and not a human peace that exists between one another, but a lasting peace that only he could bring between God and man as the mediator. For just two chapters later, in the Gospel of John, John would write these words that Jesus declared to his disciples in verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, Jesus came to make our war his, so he could make his peace ours. He came and took on flesh and made the war that we had against death and sin his own, so that he could give us a peace that wasn't possible apart from him. Our war on sin, our war on death, our war against our very own flesh that we could not defeat on our own. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the profound love of God displayed through Jesus for us. That he would make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That he would make him who was not at enmity with God take on the full wrath of God so that we could experience the love of God, the peace of God, the unity with God. He took on the shame and the sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because the righteousness of God is not found apart from him. It is only in him. In fact, the writer here of the gospel, John, makes it a point to give us a little insight into the disciples' perspective on everything happening before their eyes right now. He admits that though Jesus told them time and time again he was going to die, they didn't get it. The text says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. They didn't understand, not at first, not until Jesus was glorified. Then the light bulb came on, then the understanding came that the more Jesus was glorified before them, the more they understand his purpose, his plan, his love, and his heart for them. And I truly believe that the more you grow in your understanding of Jesus, the more he is glorified before you, the greater you will understand how profound his love is for you and his grace and how perfect his timing is. That he is a God that holds everything in his hand. But they didn't understand it. Understand what? That Jesus, their Messiah, he came to die that they might live. That he didn't come to overthrow a physical kingdom. He came to overthrow the powers of darkness that they were in bondage to. And to convey them, to transfer them to the kingdom of light. He came as the Prince of Peace that we might have peace with the Father. And he came lowly on a donkey so that they could be spared of facing him as he returns on a white horse. Because here's the reality for everyone in this room today, everyone that has ever lived, you will either face Jesus as the Prince of Peace in your confession and repentance and be covered by his blood and saved by his grace, or you will face him as the conquering king, coming on a white horse, guilty in your sin, even with all your good works that will equate to nothing but filthy rags, And you will face his wrath as you rightfully deserve. As they approach the city of Jerusalem and they crest the Mount of Olives and Jesus begins to see the city of Jerusalem, Luke 19 gives us a little more insight into what happens at that moment when he tells us that Jesus looks upon that city and he weeps. And this isn't a silent, quiet crying within himself. This is a loud Weeping, the painful weeping that Jesus is having over the city. And he says in Luke 19, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, that the things that make for your peace, 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he goes on in verse 44 to say, because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, just as we looked at this prophecy that was clearly fulfilled to the day, he says, you should have known, especially this, your day, the day that your long-awaited Messiah came with peace for you that you desperately need. But they did not know the time of his visitation. He weeps over a city filled with people that are gathering together, longing and looking for their Messiah and yet are missing him. Millions gathered together to celebrate a Passover feast, to celebrate a lamb that's blood was spilled to cover their sins when the Lamb of God was right before them to wipe away their sins forever. People that are missing out on the lasting peace that is possible if they would only place their faith in Jesus. A religious people, but missing the point. My prayer for us today is that we would not be a people in Jerusalem like that day who go about a lot of religious functions and traditions, and yet we miss out on the most important piece of it all, the chief cornerstone that holds the whole foundation together, Jesus. Because without him, there is no peace. Without him, there is no forgiveness for your sins. There is no salvation, and there is no way to heaven except through him. Although we would heed the invitation and the exhortation in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, given to the church of Laodicea, when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus came that day into Jerusalem with an invitation of peace to anyone that would receive him. Anyone that would open up their heart and say, I'm surrendering to you. And not so you can make my current situation better or more convenient or more comfortable, but because I need you. And without you, there is no way my spiritual state can be saved. I don't need a better life. I need a new one. I don't need a better heart. I need a new one. And I can't receive that apart from Jesus. And so Jesus weeps for those people that were so close and yet missed it. For those people that he had declared he was coming down to the day, and they missed it. But here's the reality. Although we are not given the day, Jesus has told us that he is coming again. And when he comes again, how will he find you? Will he find you like those in Jerusalem, busy with a lot of things but missing the whole point of it all in Jesus? Or will he find you ready? Will he find you watching and praying as the day approaches? looking for him to return, ready for him to return, redeeming the time because the days are evil 
so that when he returns no longer on a donkey in humility, but on a horse with power and authority to conquer sin and death once and for all, will you be celebrating and singing and shouting for joy? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Or you'll be caught in shame, found in your sin, not ready, not redeeming the time, busy with other things, or neglecting him and missing him altogether, I hope and pray not. But as I invite the worship team to come back up, as we prepare to close in a final song of worship, just as the prophecy of Zechariah declared, your king is coming. It's not a matter of if, it's just a question of when. And he's given us one word to describe his return. He's coming quickly. And I know that his quickly and our quickly might be two very different things. But I want to be someone that's found faithful and ready. I'm going to be someone that is prayerful and waiting. And my hope and prayer for you is that you do as well. That you are making and preparing the way for Jesus to return. That you are going and seeking those who don't know Jesus and declaring to them that Jesus the prince of peace that they can know now so they don't have to know him as the conquering king and face his wrath later. There is no peace apart from Jesus. There is no forgiveness apart from Jesus. There is no middle ground. You are with him and for him or you are against him. But would we be a people that not only know him as Lord and King, but declare him to those who do not. Before we close in this song, I want to give you an opportunity. As we enter what is one of the greatest weeks that we get to celebrate as a church, Holy Week, and we start remembering this day that Jesus approached Jerusalem, that he came to die, and he rode in on that donkey to bring peace for people. There may be those here today that are coming to church because this is the time of year you come to church. But you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so you haven't experienced that peace with the Father that could be yours. You don't know what it is to have a new heart and a new spirit put within you. To be redeemed and forgiven of all your sins and mistakes. To be covered in His blood to know the righteousness of God which is yours in Christ Jesus to have a new hope and a new future to have all your sins and mistakes cast as far as the east is from the west and to have a new home and a new family in Christ I want to give you an opportunity right now to enter Holy Week in the greatest way you possibly could by making the decision to give your life to Jesus. And if you haven't done that, we don't want to waste another minute. If that's you, I would ask you to raise your hand. 
to confess before the family of God that you want that forgiveness. You want that peace. You want that salvation. And I'll tell you, you can look anywhere and everywhere else in the world, but you won't find it. It's only found in Jesus. And it doesn't take 20 years to earn it because you never could in a lifetime. You don't have to twist the arm of God and convince him to let you in. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, and you will be saved in a moment because of what Jesus did on the cross when he finished the work required for your salvation. It's a free gift for you, but it didn't come cheap. It came at the life and death of Jesus, as we will see on Friday. Is there anybody in this moment that needs to make that decision today? As he has said, he sits at the door and knocks. Would you respond today and open your heart to him? Well, then I trust and believe that this morning we are amongst the family of God. Those who have made that decision, as Jesus has knocked on your heart to respond and open it and receive him, then I would invite you as we close in this final song of worship, a song of praise, that you would celebrate our Messiah who has come, who came to die for us so that we could find life, abundant life in him. And let's sing this out that it might be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Would you stand with me as I close in prayer and we sing out this song? Lord, we thank you that you are the Messiah who has come to fulfill prophecy, to overthrow the spiritual powers of darkness, to bring salvation and peace between us and God. Lord, that is something to sing about. That is something to celebrate. And I pray that our praises this morning would be a sweet-smelling aroma to you. That we would not hold back in our celebration and praise to you this morning. That this place would be filled with shouts and praises. The celebration of a people who have been saved. A people that have been redeemed. A people who know the peace of God. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.